0: genocidal ironies. The neighborhood bully been driven out of every land. He's wandered the earth an exiled man. Seen his family scattered, his people hounded and torn. He's always on trial for just being born. He's the neighborhood bully. This is one of the many verses in Bob Dylan's explicitly pro-Israel song, Neighborhood Bully. It's not one of Dylan's more metaphor-filled compositions. It has very little of his characteristic brilliant imagery. It just makes its pro-Israel point directly and clearly. He recorded the song in 1983, while the blood was still drying on the alleyways of the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in Lebanon, where Israeli troops had protected a fascist Christian militia as they raped and murdered 3,000 Palestinians, mostly women and children. Bob Dylan, that iconic songwriter known for being one of the most famous people on earth and for penning such anti-war classics as Masters of War and such anti-racist classics as Only a Pawn in Their Game, is also an ardent supporter of Israel, at least according to my interpretation of his song lyrics. Other verses in Neighborhood Bully make his stance much more obvious. Dylan is far from alone as a person known for his otherwise progressive views who has extremely regressive views when it comes to the question of Israel and the long-standing practice of apartheid enforced there by the state with the army in which Palestinians are not welcome, in which Palestinians have been dispossessed at gunpoint of 92% of their land so far, with the rest of it under Israeli military rule. Many people will point to Dylan's apparently contradictory political views and call that ironic. How can a person who so eloquently supports equal rights for black people in the U.S. have such a blind spot when it comes to the blatant dispossession and oppression of Palestinians? How can someone write such blistering verse in opposition to the American war machine while at the same time, or technically about 20 years later, embracing the country that is the biggest recipient of U.S. military aid? Dylanologists might say his politics evolved over time. As a bit of a Dylanologist myself, I'd argue against this theory, but I'm not actually going to write an article about Bob Dylan's politics, so I'll just leave that question there. My point here is Dylan is not alone in having these obvious contradictions in his worldview. He's one of many. But Dylan explains this apparent irony in his song, which is why I think it's such a good song, though I also find it profoundly disagreeable. Those who are bullied don't automatically or even usually become lifelong advocates for all of the oppressed people of the world. More often, they lay low and try to avoid the bullies for the rest of their lives. Perhaps just as often, they become bullies themselves. Anyone who has known other people on this planet can probably easily agree with what I'm saying from your own life experience. Did everyone you know who was bullied as kids become anti-bullying activists for the rest of their lives afterwards? No. By my observation of the 25 countries I've spent much time in, and by my reading of history, it's very much the same with societies. Politics and history are complex, and there are many explanations for why things play out differently at different times and different places. But taking the example of what they called the refugee crisis in Europe in 2015, when a lot of non-European refugees were trying to escape the war zones of Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Eritrea, etc., the countries where refugees seem to have received the warmest welcome have been some of the countries in Europe that have at this point experienced generations of prosperity and are some of the most egalitarian societies on earth today, such as Sweden and Germany. By contrast, in places like former Yugoslavia, the Czech Republic, and Hungary, all places with a much more recent history of bloodshed and forced migration, the largely Muslim refugees were decidedly less welcome. Of course, the welcoming of Ukrainian refugees throughout Eastern Europe since February 2022 has been nothing short of amazing, with millions of Ukrainians absorbed into neighboring countries, staying in people's homes without even the need for any refugee camps to be set up. When the refugees are being oppressed by a country, you also identify as an oppressive regime. They look and act more like you do. They feel like they're a part of your broader tribe and not from outside of it. And most of them are women and children rather than young men. It's obviously a different situation. We all love the stories of people opening their doors and their hearts to the other and living out the kinds of values that are cherished, at least somewhere along the line, by all the religions that I've ever heard of, represented for the Christians in verses like Matthew twenty-five thirty-five. But by my observation the saying, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, often is not true. It has often been observed that there seem to be a disproportionately large number of people of Jewish lineage represented in the ranks of the left, among those who are known voices or organizers within movements to stop war, welcome refugees, build labor unions, and institute progressive policies of all kinds in the US, the UK, and lots of other countries with significant Jewish populations. There are once again complex reasons why this is the case, but certainly a good part of the explanation might sensibly be understood to be this kind of solidarity orientation is the result of centuries of oppression. In my own travels around Israel, my experience with most of the Israelis of Jewish lineage that I met was of a people who had a wide variety of views on everything, most of them progressive. I met many Israeli citizens who grew up in the US, the UK, or Australia and who had been involved with the same anti-war and anti-racist movements that Bob Dylan sang about. And when it came to the question of the Palestinians, I also met Israelis who were all over the place politically. I met many Israeli anarchists and other radicals who were regularly putting their lives on the line to oppose the ongoing annexation of more and more of the West Bank. I know many Israelis who left the country in order to avoid serving in a military enforcing policies they couldn't support. But when the second intifada started in September 2000, most of the Israelis of Jewish lineage that I had previously condemned—that I—that I I had met previously—condemned me for my sympathies with the uprising. It became abundantly clear to me from personal experience that where the progressive views of so many Israelis end is where Palestinians, Iraqis, or other Arabs are concerned. When we examine the history of the 20th century and also consider what we know of how humans may behave under the influence of unspeakable oppression, it becomes easier to understand why we are witnessing the horrors we are now watching unfold in Israel, the West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, and especially Gaza. I wrote a recent essay contrasting two hugely important events that took place in different parts of the U.S. in the year 1921. Both involved many thousands of working-class veterans of the First World War. In Oklahoma, where the very influential working-class union had been violently repressed by the state years earlier, there was a racist pogrom with an entire black neighborhood burned to the ground by a white mob. In West Virginia, where the United Mine Workers of America were a dominant force, Tens of thousands of people participated in a multiracial armed uprising against the coal barons to free their imprisoned comrades being held indefinitely without charge. Both events overwhelmingly involving white working-class American veterans of the First World War, both in the same country in the same year, but so radically different from each other, due, in my view, to differing circumstances. When the vegetarian from Vienna took power in Germany and soon the army under his command occupied most of Europe, the genocidal slaughter of Roma, communists, Russians, and so many others, especially Jews, had an impact that would not be limited to Europe. The Zionist movement, the movement to populate Palestine with Jews, had been going on since the 1890s, but it was not all that popular. The vast majority of the world's Jews were not joining preferring rather to stay where they were or move to somewhere more hospitable like New York City. But with the combination of the U.S., Canada, and many other countries European Jews wanted to escape to, preventing them from emigrating throughout the 1930s and well into the 1940s, those who wanted to escape genocide often went to Palestine and South America because they could get visas to go to those places. This pressure from U.S. immigration policies, combined with the horrors of the gas chambers, ended up changing a lot of minds when it came to the question of the Zionist movement. The idea of leaving genocide-ridden Europe and the idea of Jews gathering together to look out for each other gained a lot of traction. The never-again-to-anyone lesson we're all supposed to have learned from the European experience of fascism was not a universal lesson. Whether we like it or not, and I sure don't, The lesson many people drew from the experience was, never again to us. The idea of the state of Israel committing genocide against Palestinians is only ironic if you assume that the Nazi Holocaust taught all of us, all of those who survived it, that universal love and the brotherhood of man was the only way forward. Some people and national leaders of many parties came to very different conclusions and received untold amounts of military aid and political backing from the most powerful countries in the world to continually bolster the worst kinds of expansionist subtler colonial policies. Rather than being ironic, israeli fascism is much more a consequence or at least a knock-on effect of the experience of german fascism which itself had its own roots in the german experience of the early 20th century the aftermath of the great war and how the many contradictions in society then played out which is not to suggest that either german fascism or israeli fascism were inevitabilities but they both came into existence with many forms of encouragement from both within and without In Israel's case, at almost every juncture where outside pressure from backers like the United States could have potentially brought about the mythical two-state solution, the U.S. just sent more military aid instead, this way massively supporting the agenda of the Israeli far-right and massively undermining any more nuanced elements of Israeli society and, of course, massively and constantly undermining the interests of all of the Palestinians. And now, here we are. With the Western countries sending solidarity and aid to the army that is in the process of annihilating a densely populated, besieged, and walled ghetto with a million children in it, in the name of eliminating the closest thing to an elected government Palestinians have ever had, who the Israelis denounce as terrorists, even after Israeli bombardment has killed close to a thousand Palestinian children just in the past few days, and they're only the latest thousand children in Gaza to be killed by Israeli bombs and sanctions. Just as we can explain the influences that have led to a fascist regime bent on genocide in Israel, we can explain the disdain for human life exhibited by, say, Islamic State. We can make good sense of why they grew out of a place like US-occupied Iraq. By the same token, we can explain the development of the genocidal regimes that have for so long been in power in places like Guatemala or El Salvador. And of course it's easy, in context to explain why Hamas militants would take civilian hostages to to exchange for the thousands of Palestinians held indefinitely in Israeli prisons on no charges. For the moralistically inclined among you, dear listeners, I'm trying to explain how fascism and state-sponsored genocidal initiatives can take hold in a society as it has done in Israel, as it did in Germany, and as it has done in other societies. Explaining is not justifying. I have no interest in justifications, or condemnations, they're so useless. What we need is to understand realities as they are, and to change reality, which can only be done by first understanding it, and how it got this way. For something to be ironic, there is an implication of mystery, that is, something isn't as we think it should be, therefore it is ironic, and therefore it is mysterious. There's a danger for people to just throw up their hands in the face of mysterious things we don't understand. But there's no real mystery here. If you face the horror of what's happening now, what's been happening for years and decades as this Israeli regime has been committing daily killings of Palestinian youth and so many others, and if you follow the horrors of the history that preceded these massacres in the places where those willingly or unwillingly participating in the Zionist project over the course of the past century or so came from. The Palestinians had nothing to do with the Nazi Holocaust, but they have been perpetual victims of the consequences of the redrawing of so many of the world's national borders in the wake of the First World War, along with the immense multi-generational traumas inflicted on so many people and peoples around the planet, in particular from the Second World War traumas, it seems to me, which have remained raw for the past 75 years of the failed settler colonial project on Palestinian land, which has produced so much violence and discord, most especially for Palestinians, but also for so many innocent Israelis who happened to be sitting on a bus that had a soldier on it and were blown up along with the soldier, or or who died in so many other equally horrific circumstances, such as by getting mowed down while running away from machine gun fire after spending the night dancing at a festival. If my words could change anything, I would say that we have to stop this genocide that is currently underway in Gaza, and which seems to be set to get much more violent. But no one from the Israeli Knesset or the Pentagon seems to read my blog, and no one in the Knesset or the Pentagon seems to be listening to the masses of people around the world currently in the streets calling for a cessation in the bombing.
1: The drones above your head what were the last words that she said before she joined the thousands dead as the bombs rain down see the fire in the sky hear all of the children cry the tower falls from way up high as the bombs rain down see the dust rise everywhere once it was a building there then it crashed down from the air as the bombs rained down twisted bodies all around the never-ending buzzing sound the earthquake shaking all the ground as the bombs rained down shattered camps of refugees necklaces of ancient keys smell the burning olive trees as the bombs rain down see the homes apartment blocks see the mosques reduced to rocks feel the awe and feel the shock as the bombs rain down see the sewage in the street mixed with blood beneath your feet Before the sonic boom repeats, as the bombs rain down. See the darkness of the night, no power for the lights, But the explosions are so bright, as the bombs rain down. Nothing left but rubble strewn, nothing rising but the moon, But the next one's coming soon, as the bombs rain down. Hear the politicians say There's nothing here to see today We're punishing Hamas this way As the bombs rained down Hear the drones above your head What were the last words that she said Before she joined the thousands dead As the bombs rained down